Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Buscher. And today we're joined by Sonia Balotra, Professor of Economics at the University of Warwick. Sonia's research interests cover a wide range of topics, but primarily today we will focus on her work looking at the creation of human capital, early childhood development, the long-term benefits of early life health <laughs> interventions, gender inequality, intergenerational mobility, and the dynamics of fertility and mortality. And even that is just a small snapshot of the sort of research that Sonia does. So we'll do well to uh, cover all those things. As with all of our guests, Sonia's research is highly policy relevant. And so we're delighted she's able to join us today. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you. Hello, Matt and Franz. So Sonia, you have an incredible volume of work and we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of it today. But to kick off, I want to ask you about a recent paper that's not only a great bit of research, but also has one of the coolest titles I think I've ever come across. Um, and that is... Shadows of the Captain of the Men of Death, Early Life, Health, Human Capital Investment and Institutions. First off, can you just tell us about this title, where that comes from, and, and also what the paper's all about? Yeah, so the title, The Captain of the Men of Death, refers to pneumonia. The phrase was coined by William Osler, who's a co-founder of Johns Hopkins, also called Father of Modern Medicine. And he used that phrase to describe pneumonia because at the time, in the early 20th century, it accounted for one in 10 of all deaths and was a leading cause of infant mortality. We use the phrase shadow of um, the shadows of the captain of the men of death because we're interested in tracing the long run impacts of being exposed to pneumonia in infancy. So can you tell us a little bit about the mechanisms, how pneumonia might affect sort of long-term outcomes, life outcomes, not just health outcomes, but other outcomes? Yeah, so the life outcomes we focus on are educational and labor market outcomes with sort of earnings being the end point. Um, and why would a child having pneumonia impact their earnings when they're say 40 years old, which is roughly when we, when we measure income? Roughly how old I am on Francis, so that's good as well. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Let's not get too detailed here. <laughs> so we, we now live in a post-antibiotic era, so I should scroll back to explain to you that before we had antibiotics, pneumonia uh, was a very morbid disease. Um, a child who got pneumonia could be laid up ill for as long as 39 days, and often children who had one episode had several. So it was quite debilitating. Um, pneumonia, like other infectious diseases, stimulates inflammation. And the process of inflammation in the body commands resources. Um, we're specifically interested in infancy for two reasons. One is that it's a period of very rapid development, at which time the individual really needs um, resources. What's interesting in particular is that 80% of all calories consumed by infants are used for brain development. So you can imagine that if there's any reason, in this case infection, could be famine, in this case it's infection, if there's any reason that the child doesn't get the nutrients it needs for development, then development could be impaired because it's happening rapidly and the resources needed are intense. So not only in this work, but in a way more explicitly in other work set in Sweden and Mexico, we've looked at um, causal impacts of nutritional deficiencies or infections in childhood on brain development and found impacts on school test scores and IQ or intelligence um, tests. Franz? Yeah, so I guess one of the questions here I have is, you know, how do you go about, a lot of our listeners, we've talked about causality many times in, in, in our shows and our all our listeners are by now econometric experts, uh, whoever's left still. But, you know, uh, the, the basic question here, I guess, is, um, you know, uh, are children who get pneumonia likely to be a certain type of child? So, you know, you, you, and I think your paper looks at the 1930s and 40s. So, you know, I'm really going back to sort of kind of, you know, um, um, my uh, Charles Dickens uh, <laughs> idea of how the world looks. And I'm thinking that, you know, a lot all the people who get pneumonia are poor children. They live in poor neighborhoods. It's very dirty, very unhealthy. So maybe it's just, a, you know, an effect of being poor. 
Exactly. So the problem you mentioned is selectivity into infection. And you could imagine that, in fact, pneumonia in childhood does not cause poverty in adulthood, but that poor children get pneumonia and they grow up, they're still poor. And the way we address this is by using not exposure to infection, but exposure to treatment for infection. So the treatment of interest is the innovation of antibiotics. These were the first antibiotics appearing in the US in 1937 and they treated pneumonia. They didn't treat everything. For example, they didn't treat tuberculosis. So in fact, that's a nice placebo for us. And I, don't, I won't go into detail, but we do use these placebos. Since that drug didn't treat tuberculosis, that cannot be a pathway. What we essentially do is compare children who were born just before these antibiotics were available with children born just after. And it's not simply a before or after analysis. We cross it with something that carries information on the burden of pneumonia, which is basically the baseline or pre-antibiotic um, infection rate um, by state in the United States. Okay, so you're kind of exploiting, this is a bit like what we talked to Colin Green about in, in the last show where there's some historical events that um, happen and then we can kind of look forward from those events in a very, yeah, very cool way that you're kind of replicating, as we've often talked about, a kind of natural experiment where something happens uh, to some children. And in this case, they happen to be born when these new uh, wonder drugs uh, that we still rely on today when they're, when they're first available. So you can compare them. And so it's not just cohorts, it's across states as well. So you've got some nice kind of uh, very a lot of nice variation to use which is what we uh, as listeners will know that's what we always like uh, to have some variation to be able to compare the effects so um, so you do that and then yeah so what 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 happens when you look at this kind of treatment um, of not suffering with pneumonia in the same way because you get the antibiotics how does that then affect these education and employment outcomes yeah so basically we do find what we uh, what we, um, what I hypothesize, which is that the states most burdened by pneumonia in the pre-antibiotic era experienced the largest declines in pneumonia upon the introduction of the drug. So that's what you might call the first stage. So it, it happened that pneumonia or disease levels converged. And then we see a mirror of this in economic outcomes some 40 years later. We use census data for microcensus data for 1970, 18 and onwards. Uh, so we find impacts on all of these outcomes, education, college attainment, earnings, employment, and disability receipt, receipt of disability welfare payments. So um, I could so, go- So the... it's quite full spectrum then, right? So, you know, a, a kind of, what one might consider to be sort of a minor medical intervention to antibiotics leads to a kind of full spectrum uh, change in life outcomes 40 years down the line. So I, I know it's kind of easy to say this, but just imagining this seems like quite a significant thing, right? Yes. And it's been, I mean, there are, I'm not the only person doing this sort of research with co-authors. Um, there are other studies showing this. So one of the innovations we make, well, one is to look at pneumonia, which is still the leading cause of death today. So it's very important. And another is to look at how this, uh, look a bit more at the mechanisms, how this childhood um, intervention or intervention available in childhood um, actually translates into higher incomes. I set out earlier biological mechanisms, but then, and I, I'm uh, from a number of studies fairly convinced that the biological mechanism is a key initiation of this process. But whether we realize the full potential of early life health improvements does depend on institutions. So one of the contributions of this work is to try and capture the impact of institutions. So the institutions we have in mind are good schools and what you might call good jobs or jobs you'd want to have. And I guess in, in 
America in that era as well. I think you go into looking at the kind of the racial divide, right? That the institutions that um, blacks in America have access to compared to whites are quite different. And therefore, even though this treatment, you know, even though pneumonia as a disease, you know, is, is kind of colorblind, right? And the way it affects and the antibiotics similarly, you know, treat people and have the same um, curative effect actually how that interacts with the kind of institutional environment then it impacts on how much of a benefit you get from not having pneumonia, right? Yes, exactly. So what we find is that uh, the gains, just as a benchmark, the gains from being exposed to this lower uh, pneumonia um, exposure uh, rate in childhood were similar for white Americans across the states of the United States. But there were dramatic differences for black Americans depending on where they were born. In the deep south, where discrimination against black people was de jure by law under the Jim Crow laws, the gains were largely obliterated. And this isn't because uh, black people in the south didn't have access to the drug we show what we call first stage evidence. We show large declines in pneumonia amongst the black population, even in the most segregated states. So what we home in on as the, as the hampering factor, the inhib inhib inhibitor to these long run gains is that in the South, black people didn't have access to, this, to schools of good quality something that has been vastly documented by other scholars. And also similarly, their access to jobs was uneven. So since they couldn't reap the economic benefits through um, exploiting their health endowments uh, the way that um, say white people could do at school and in the labor market, they don't show higher incomes or higher employment largely. On the other hand, Black Americans in the North do. They had high levels of pneumonia, much higher than the whites. They saw large declines. And in the North, where these restrictions were much weaker, uh, Black Americans did much better. Let me throw a little bit of a curveball to you because you know this dates this this paper is really interesting and looks at this kind of big historical impact of 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 a drug basically curing some sort of disease. And and there's a kind of um, a linkage there to where we are right now with COVID and the vaccines coming out. And uh, you know, just very recently, there's discussion about, you know, different, 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 different groups of people, uh, you know, white versus BAME, et cetera, taking or having different vaccination rates and, and all that kind of stuff. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on whether there's any lessons from your paper on, on the current situation, perhaps also very much on the idea that you know a simple vaccine or a simple drug leads to significant life-changing labor market education health outcomes 40 years down the line line and whether that should tell us anything about for example the the value of the covid vaccinations i know there's been a lot of discussion in the european union the united states about you know the price per dollar for each vaccine Moderna is so expensive at whatever $50 and the Pfizer one uh, costs uh, whatever $2. But it seems to me that the actual dollar value to for, for society is in the thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars down the line, right? I, so any thoughts on that? Yes. So the not only for um, pneumonia, for which now we have a pneumococcal vaccine, but also for other infectious diseases like diarrhea, which I studied in Mexico, or the whole package, which I studied in Sweden, it seems clear from many studies that the once you account for dynamic or long-run returns, the economic gains to intervening in early life health are very large. And in this discussion, I've only emphasized the income gains but in the work on Sweden, where we had more comprehensive long-run data, we also found that addressing infectious disease in childhood led to lower rates of chronic disease in adulthood. People who were exposed to a simple intervention like the British Nurse Family Partnership grew up to, to be less likely to die early. And the causes of death that were modified were cancer and cardiovascular. 
So this suggests the causal link from treating infections early to preventing um, chronic disease. And we know so well today how expensive it is to treat chronic disease, apart from, of course, all the suffering. So it's like a no-brainer that um, simple things like breastfeeding, sanitation, giving children an antibiotic when they have a high fever, none of which cost very much, especially if you remove patents on antibiotics, which is another story. Patents are um, pressing up the prices of antibiotics to a silly extent. They're not expensive to produce. But if we could make antibiotics available at low cost, which is the true cost of which is actually really affordable, then we would have significant long-run economic gains, much higher than in capital investment projects. The reason we don't do this, it's still a problem. There's still black-white differences in early life health in the US and elsewhere. The reason we don't do this is that the gains extend beyond the political horizon. So the problem is quite similar to the climate change problem. It's right in front of us. The evidence is there, but the benefits really emerge in economic terms, as we said, maybe 30 years later, when these babies join the labor market and governments don't have 30 year horizons. I think it's really interesting as well that it's a similar issue that we've talked before about education and the kind of dynamic complementarity of you know, early investments in education make later investments more productive and also just have these long run benefits right and it's very very similar here in what you're saying about health investments as well that you have this early health investment and not only does it kind of benefit in terms of education and what have you but it also has benefits on later longer term health as well but again it's that as you say there's this clash between the kind of evidence and then the kind of politics of the of the policy making because as you say you don't have this politicians don't have these long um time horizons and the incentive to invest uh significant kind of political capital in in these kind of programs i mean i think i guess all we can do is keep you know the work that you're doing the work that others are doing to keep putting this on the on the political agenda to try and get um to try and get those long-term investments which as you say the actual return on that sort of investment is huge and and much better than your average kind of financial um monetary instruments and, and investments and so it's it's really a no-brainer but yeah we're at this point yeah and i just point out one more thing in that, that matters there which is in poor countries today. Um, infectious disease is still the main um, problem early in life. And in fact, treating infectious disease has strong externalities. So again, we increase the payoff to interventions because if you treat a small fraction of children, you then control the, the transmission rate, as we're discussing all the time with COVID these days. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because, yeah, the, the data we were talking about a moment ago is from the US and we're talking about the 1930s and 1940s but today as you say pneumonia kills millions of of children every year I think your paper said you know it's more than AIDS malaria and TB combined and for many of them um, that could have been prevented just with simple antibiotics and so that kind of 1930s 40s America situation is replicated now across lots of the kind of lower income world um, so it's hugely um, policy relevant, uh, these lessons. Yeah, and it, there's a WHO figure, I'm not sure how they come at it, which is that only 20% of children who have pneumonia today have access to antibiotics for a mixture of actual physical access, like you go to a local clinic and the stocks aren't there, um, and prices. So there's a lot of room for maneuver. We don't need an innovation, but it's also true that because of um, antibiotic resistance, we also need innovation. So the, the study is not just history. But like all good economists, on you, you, you've not let this research design, which is very cool, just go for uh, just the one paper. You've also looked at this introduction of antibiotics in the US to look at the effects of reduced infant mortality on female labor supply and female uh, well, and fertility timing. And the previous kind of economic theory suggests that an increase 
in uh, the increase in female labor supply that we saw in the US between the 1930s and particularly up to like the 1980s and it's carried on through to today. People have put that down to women getting more education uh, and, and the world and workplaces in particular becoming more female friendly. But your innovation here is to look at the contribution of the improvement in infant mortality uh, as an explanation for the change in the labour supply. So um, can you just unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, in the paper we just discussed, we, we traced the, um, uh, trace the later life outcomes of children born just before and after the antibiotic. In this second paper, we look at uh, the mothers of those children or women who were of childbearing age when the antibiotics became available. The basic idea is that improvements in the health and survival chances of children, their potential children, released or liberated women from the burdens of caring for sick children and replacing non-surviving children. So, and this frees up their time and energy for a career. So we, um, we make the point that improved child health um, creates productive opportunities for women. To understand the force of this argument, I need to tell you the sorts of numbers that are relevant because they're quite different from the numbers that you and I would um, come across in Britain. In Africa today, um, close to one in 10 children die before the age of five, despite considerable progress. So that's today. And average fertility in many African countries is close to five. So conditional on having at least one child, um, there's about a 50% chance a woman will lose one child. That's huge. So, mm. so the impact, this feeds back into fertility in two ways. Uh, one is that women expect to lose a child. There's a high expectation. So they hoard, which means they have an extra just in case beyond what they really want, the number they really want. And secondly, once they lose children, they may act to replace them. In an older paper, I estimated with a co-author the rate of replacement to be one in three. So if you think that women have something like six children, maybe lose one, seven children, each takes a year in pregnancy, maybe one or two years to conception, it's three years, it could be 12 or 18 years of the woman's life. That's the clear death of any career plan. So I think it's important to see that the magnitudes are so um, significant in poor countries. I did sort of, I was hand waving with the numbers, but they're just ballpark. No, I think it's really important because these kind of numbers are not something that you're right, we would be used to in the UK. You know, the, the concept of child mortality in any case is not something that people hear a lot about in the news or anywhere really, uh, or have any experience of, given where we are in, in, in the U United Kingdom or the European Union or the United States. So it's quite sobering to hear these kind of numbers that this is still happening. And what I find particularly interesting is that we relate that back to this idea of you know uh, the antibiotics and to this sort of quite simple intervention uh, affecting these numbers quite significantly. So, uh, so do you have any, can you give us any scope on, 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 on what the effect is of these antibiotics in, in increasing sort of child health and then affecting actually the female labor supply and how many, so because I think you mentioned in your paper, it increases the probability of childlessness. So there's even some people who say, all right, you know, we're going with zero now. Yeah, so we basically find quite large impacts on women's labor force participation, and actually also on their skill levels. So they weren't just working, but working in better jobs, which suggests sort of career paths. And as classical economic theory predicts, we find that uh, women experiencing improvements in child health have fewer children. But if we look also at the extensive margin, which is whether they have any children at all, we again find they have fewer children. This latter result is inconsistent with standard economic theory, where a parent or a mom is making decisions over the quantity, the number, and the quality, which is just the health and education of children. 
what we introduce into the classical framework, which is then consistent with our findings, is the importance of fertility timing. And the reason the timing of fertility is important is that it's closely related to your career plans. So the main idea really to cut a long story short is that once child mortality falls, the insurance value of early fertility falls because you don't expect to spend all this time having replacement births or additional births just in case. You can start to have your, suppose you want three children, you can start to have them a little bit later, stay in the labor market a bit longer. If the whole process ends sooner, you can return to the labor market, all of that. The reason, so uh, we have no, we, we cannot say because we don't have the intentions of women in the data, but it seems to us unlikely that women chose to be childless at a higher rate. What we think happened, is that they delayed fertility and then various biological and um, market shocks play in and some fraction that did not plan to be childless ended up childless. That's a sort of, to be honest, like an academic, um, it's of academic interest um, more than anything else. But if you decide, uh, we do, I think I do see that around me in academia, if you decide to pursue your career for just a bit longer, you postpone birth. It can happen that you don't find a marriage partner, your fecundity or your biological ability to have children declines as you age, and or you develop a taste for work or new opportunities come, come up and you can get carried away and miss the boat. It's, it's interesting because again, it's an example where there's a kind of biological institutional interaction right because there's this, this time biological process and clock you know clock ticking to use that kind of uh, phrase but at the same time there's an interaction with yeah what's happening in the labor market so your career you go on this career path and perhaps yeah as things develop you know you maybe postpone a little bit later a little bit later and then yeah you end up with more people being childless that's really again it's really interesting uh, from your paper the way in which these things interact with the institutional um, environment and one thing actually with both you know with this idea of the impact of of antibiotics having this dramatic impact on the children and if we were to try and put a dollar value on you know what what the the value of the antibiotics is you know huge huge billions of dollars uh in in terms of you know, extra economic outcomes and similarly for the women uh who were able to have more labor market career because of this um not having to have more children and replace children and all that sort of stuff and i think you know franz and i've worked on uh reports looking at the um financial returns to doing a phd and this you know when these came out and it's like you know oh the returns on a phd they're really pretty pretty low and there's a bit of policy discussion around well you know is it worth people doing phds and you think actually if you set again the social returns for a phd and we talked about this in the context of COVID and vaccines. And you think, you know, the value of the of the high level academic research that goes into producing these medicines and vaccines. It's like that is paid. That's paid off. You know, everybody's PhD, doesn't matter what your subject is. You know, the social returns globally are just so high. Uh, I'm just I'm just trying to kind of redeem our work here a little bit and say that, you know, um, when you put put it in this context and, and your work is really helpful for that, um, Sonia, of of just showing the massive effects that these um, drugs and, and scientific developments have on the life outcomes of the children, but also, yeah, of, of the parents. Yeah, and just to broaden the scope of this discussion, hoping it, so hoping somebody in government is listening, uh, I would say, I would tag on that, although I, I would not um, under, undermine the importance of the drugs, um, the, the, this research, I think, holds for other interventions like providing clean water, which acts similarly to reduce infections for children like diarrhea instead of pneumonia. So the pathway is different, but the point is that reducing infectious disease, which you can do with um, better diets, um, clean water, drugs, um, and so on, all of that has similar returns broadly. And actually, your your research on kind of 
this question of fertility and female labor supply and child outcomes you know that's a huge area there's lots of research on that and um as listeners to the program will be well aware we're always on the lookout for these situations that mimic a randomized experiment uh, and we get these natural experiments indeed as we talked about you know the introduction of the antibiotics that creates this kind of natural experiment um, but you've got work on another kind of area that looks at this research domain but um, using a different type of natural experiment which is uh, twin births uh, to look at the impact of fertility on different outcomes so this is a again it's a natural experiment in some ways a, a even more natural <laughs> natural experiment because we're thinking about like twin births uh, but can you just talk us through the strategy I don't think in all the time we've been doing policy matters I don't think we've ever talked about identifying effects from twin births but I might I might be wrong but uh, can you just give us the intuition behind this uh, twin birth uh, natural experiment yeah so across the social and medical sciences for decades we've used the fact that we think twin births are at least conditionally random psychologists and medics have typically leveraged this to isolate influences of nurture from nature and economists have leveraged it additionally to identify impacts of fertility, either on women's labor force participation or on investments in children. The idea there for that instrument is that a twin birth is what economists call exogenous or accidental, happens by chance. And so it's not a choice. A woman has two instead of one child when, when she has a twin, and it wasn't something she planned, and therefore it may not have been part of the process that led to her sending the older child to private school or, or deciding whether or not to go to college and so on. I think, I think that's just to say on the twin birth, the accident, and no one plans to have twins. I think I remember thinking that before having children that had twins, you know, it seems like from an economist's point of view, it seems like, oh, that's quite an efficient thing to do. You know, there are some fixed costs of having children. If you have two at once, maybe you get a boy and a girl and it's like, you know, you've then got one of each, you get it all done in one go. That seems like a really, you know, that, I can see the efficiency of that. But I, I soon realized that that was a kind of someone without children's um, thought about what the experience of having twins would be. Because after having one child, it was like, I cannot imagine what it's like having two children, <laughs> two at the same time and trying to deal with that. So I think... Um, is that how you put it to your wife before you had kids? <laughs> yeah, let's try and have twins. Efficiency now, gains. Efficiency gains. Yeah, that, uh, yeah that's my uh, yeah romantic talk. Um, but um, I I think yeah that it just underscores to me on a personal level the fact that yeah this twins is a kind of and shock is the right word I think because I think it would be a shock to find you know you're having two children instead of one. Um, so yeah, I I, I can really see the. On a, on a personal or on a human level, the way in which that kind of instrument would work, right? It's a, it's a natural shock uh, to the family and to the parents, definitely. Yeah. So, um, so economists have used the twin instrument to deal with the bias in simple associational studies, such as in OLS, where, for example, if you run a simple regression, like you don't worry about endogeneity or simultaneous decisions, then typically you find that um, women who have, uh, or children who are part of a big sib, sib ship, so if you're one of many children, you often get less time from the mother, possibly fewer holidays abroad, possibly lower chances of going to paid tuition, etc. So that's what people call the quantity quality trade-off. But using the twin instrument, uh, recent high-profile studies have argued that actually this whole thing is a myth, at least in richer countries, and there is no trade-off. Um, so we come in here, well, we come in somewhat more generically, maybe I'll backtrack to how the quantity-quality trade-off is moderated. Let me just tell you the big idea, which is general, which is across the sciences and social sciences, this assumption that twin births are exogenous, um, is questioned in our work by showing that um, showing that twin births are not random, but systematically more likely to be born to healthy women. Okay, so I guess the backtracking even a slightly bit more, 
if we want to look at this quality quantity trade-off that you know if you have more children you can invest less time and resources in them and so that that might be worse for their outcomes normally and, and again listeners will know that you know if we wanted to look at that relationship we'd just gather a, a load of data on size of family and child outcomes and run a, a, a regression a linear relationship between those things and we'd see okay having one more child how does that affect the outcomes of the children but the problem um as you as you mentioned um is that if you're in a bigger family yeah there is that effect but also bigger families aren't random themselves you know that that might be related to other characteristics of of the family and therefore if we look at the relationship between number of children number of siblings you have and how well you do that's going to be confounded or it's going to be endogenous you know there's going to be other things going on and so the idea of the twins that other people have used is that then you get this shock and we can say okay well this is an extra one that wasn't planned it wasn't related to anything else about the family so we can kind of get that clean estimate but now what you're saying is no, 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 it's not a, it's not a clean estimate at all um, because the people who have twins, it's not random. So what, how is it not random? What, what, what happens there? Yeah, so we, the, the idea which we're actually able to demonstrate is that taking twins, so the important thing to say is even if uh, the conception of twins was random, we don't know, possibly it's not, but even if, the conception, the biological process of conceiving twins was random. Our main point is that taking twins to term, in other words, having live twin births, is very demanding of maternal resources. And so healthy women are better placed to actually carry them through from conception to birth. Often you have a twin conception and one of the two babies miscarries, so you give birth to a singleton or often both babies miscarry. Miscarriage is very common, more common than I think it's known, but it's far more common uh, when the conception is of twins. So again, if you start with the thought of poor countries where women are severely undernourished and have had multiple pregnancies that have um, left them with low stocks of health, then you can imagine that many women having twin conceptions could not actually take them through to live births. But what we think is really important to underline is that this result we have is not only for poor countries. We find it in data for Sweden, America, and Britain using different measures of health. We use 16 different measures of health, including height, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, asthma, kidney disease and smoking during pregnancy. In developing countries, we use another measure which is important for policy, which is exposure to unexpected stress. We have data from Spain from a colleague who gave it to us on the bombings in Spain. And um, for poor countries, we have availability of uh, midwives and healthcare professionals. So all of these are different stresses that basically impinge on the health of women. And no matter which of these 16 variables we use for, for a variety of 72 different countries, we find that where the health stressor is absent, women are more likely to give birth to twins. So I think that's, that's a very interesting. My original thought when you uh, started saying that this might be non-random was I was thinking more kind of new age, um, developed country, you know, we've got this whole IVF boom where often you get uh, twins or, or multiple uh, multiple babies uh, emerging, often associated with richer individuals. Uh, you know, this is a socioeconomic gradient in there. But I didn't think through that actually uh, that there would be a kind of a health aspect to this. And I guess this this what you say, basically the bias, the kind of non-random selection, it seems to be exacerbated, especially in developing countries, where this health effect would be, I'm guessing, much stronger. Although you said there's also Sweden, evidence uh, from Sweden there. Um, so I think that's a really interesting finding on something that has always previously been thought to be a great way to identify causal relationships. Yeah. So I guess my my... Yeah. my my only other question here is, 
if you say all these, what is the policy implication of this? Is, is a lot of evidence based on this bias then? Should we be chucking that away? Yeah, so um, it's not clear that the effects are larger in developing countries. We don't always have the same measures. Uh, so for example, women in richer countries are more likely to smoke on average than in poorer countries. So in richer countries, smoking would be the problem in poorer countries, baseline nutrition would be the problem. And it's hard to compare for many reasons. In terms of policy implications, I think it's best to think of two different things. One is to think of this, um, what I'm saying, which is the twin births are selectively to healthier women as a marker, a statement of the importance of maternal health for miscarriage. And that, that's a sort of message that says, provide women with prenatal care to make sure they understand the importance of nutrition, exercise, not smoking, and try to encourage not just the woman, but society to understand that women in pregnancy need to be <laughs> not stressed. So I have other work we'll discuss later, I think on maternal depression. So all sorts of stress, physical or mental, can actually impinge on the pregnancy. And here, in a sense, you could think of the outcome as miscarriage. And that's the substantive policy implication, which is similar in some of my other work, which is to provide good prenatal care. But there's a sort of scholarly implication of how um, muddied the twin instrument strategy becomes once you realize that um, the twin instrument is flawed. The exclusion restriction, the premise on which we say that using twins to proxy changes in fertility allows us to identify cause and effect doesn't hold. And there I'd say we, we have a follow-up paper where we basically try to bound the estimates allowing for the failure of the instrument. So we say, yeah, the instrument doesn't work fully, but still twin birds do lead to higher fertility. So it's a sort of muddy instrument. It's called being plausibly exogenous, though not strictly exogenous. And we, we provide procedures to bound the estimates. And we find that if you adjust for maternal health and you do some bounding, the trade-off that recent studies suggested is not there is actually there. And that's, so that's, that's yeah, that's important because that, I, I know you talked about the kind of miscarriage and the policy implications there, but also this is the policy implications that there is this trade-off um, that more children does reduce the human capital of the children, basically. And um, we know from other work, your own work, we've already talked about that there's long-term effects of these kind of investments in children, um, long-term economic effects. And so there is a kind of, there's policy implication there. It's really is interesting because of the way in which, you know, some places in some countries incentivize families to be smaller, which would say, okay, invest more in one or two children. Whereas other countries are having kind of demographic issues and it's like, you know, they're trying to incentivize people to have more children. And so whether or not there is this quality quantity trade-off is really, um, there's quite important policy implications there as well. Yeah, so th these estimates uh, that correct for the flaw in the twin instrument put back on the stage in rich and poor countries equally, the issue of a potentially, sorry, of a potential human capital cost of fertility. Now that doesn't at all mean that our research advocate advocates um, fertility control. Um, it's a very personal decision that depends on so many other things. So maybe it's not about whether people should have more or less children. Uh, where I think policy comes in is where people explicitly want to have fewer children, as is the case in developing countries and are unable to for two sorts of big reasons. One is that uh, there's unmet demand for contraception. And the other is that there's, there are legal and financial restrictions on safe abortion. So I have other work I won't discuss today, which pursues the agenda for more complete access uh, for women to contraception and abortion. 
And there I think it's important because those children are unwanted. And another reason that uh, there's a sort of social issue here is that surveys across developing countries establish that men want more children than women, presumably because the cost of having them is borne predominantly by women. And there are some microdata studies, including studies identifying causality that suggest that men actually stop women from using contraception. So there's also an issue of power. Well, I think that's the whole, um, that's the whole other episode of uh, Policy Matters. I'm sure we could get into that, um, but we are, clock is ticking. We are running out of time um, a little bit, but we did just want to mention, you briefly mentioned there the um, other work you've done where we've talked a lot about these natural experiments, but you have uh, another paper, which is using an actual experiment, a randomized experiment treating uh, maternal depression um, so around pre and, and postnatal depression. Um, so can you just, yeah, I mean, this is, again, it's super important. It's a massive issue that affects a huge number of people around the world and, and women much more than men, um, <coughs> depression. Uh, so yeah, can you tell us about that actual experiment that was done and, and some quite striking findings? Yeah, so maternal health is recently very much on the public policy agenda. But maternal depression, much less so. It's estimated that about 20% of women worldwide suffer perinatal, which means before or during or after pregnancy depression. The big, big problem is that this is often undiagnosed and even when diagnosed, often left untreated as sort of some blues that the woman will spontaneously recover from. Uh, so what we did is to follow up the women of the maternal depression trial that was conducted in Pakistan some years ago. Um, the, the study recruited from 40 different communities, screened, let me say screened, not recruited, screened every pregnant woman for depression using clinical tests. And then we recruited into our trial those women who were screened as depressed. We randomized 20 of the communities into receiving a psychotherapy intervention delivered by community health workers. And then another study group actually that did not involve me, led by Atif Rahman, um, discovered that the treatment worked. It was a really simple home visiting uh, psychotherapy intervention. It led to lower postpartum depression. We came back and tracked those mothers with their children seven years later and reassessed clinically their mental health, um, their relationships with their husbands. This is Pakistan where the relationship does have strong inequalities and, um, and whether they controlled any household um, spending decisions. And then we looked at investments in children, both money investments and time investments. So, so, so just very quickly, because it sounds like, again, this is one of these rather cheaper interventions. When you say, uh, you know, um, support workers with, with some training and psychotherapy, it doesn't sound like you're sending in sort of, you know, the expensive specialists to provide the support. Yes, exactly. And I think a very a reason that the original study, which I wasn't on, it was published in The Lancet, uh, was, um, and it's, it's very, very widely known is precisely this. It shows that uh, you do not need uh, trained uh, psychologists. You just need community health workers, like very um, minimally trained people who were already in these villages providing vaccinations to children and so on to have a short, um, to have a short um, training in psychotherapy. Uh, the, the, inter the precise intervention we evaluate was adopted by the WHO and is up on their website as a recommended intervention for rollout uh, globally. And you, and you then found then, so it had an effect on the kind of post-natal uh, depression. And then seven years later, you go back and you find that there's even more positive effects. This is like a theme of all of your work about, you know, there's these long-term effects to low cost early interventions and you find, yeah. So same again, right? Yeah, it is a theme. And basically we find that these women 
are less depressed than in the control group seven years later. And remember the psychotherapy didn't continue, it was a one-off. The important comparator is drug therapy. Uh, but drug therapy does have um, long-term effects, but only if you stay on the drugs. As soon as you come off the drugs, the, there aren't, there's no evidence of lasting effects. But with psychotherapy, because the process is that you enable a way of thinking, um, there, there is this potential which we find holds that, uh, that the, the lessons are lasting. And we find that these women who are less depressed are also able in this rural Pakistan context to negotiate decisions with their husbands better. And possibly as a result, we can't prove that, but another result we find is that they invest more in their children, both in terms of time and in terms of buying them books or other um, educational aids. Well, that's Amazing, um, and it's really inspiring to hear, you know, hear, hear about your work and the way in which these there's so much policy implication. And as you know, as listeners know, we love that on uh, policy matters. Um, we, we've pretty much run out of time, but we always do like to ask our guests as we uh, wrap up. We give them the scenario where Franz and I are, are piloted in to run the country, uh, and we get to appoint secretaries of states in certain areas. And I think in in your case. If we still had DFID, it would be DFID. Now we're in Foreign Com Commonwealth and Development Office. Um, so, what would be the kind of one? If you could just bring in one policy, um, yeah. what what would be the most high impact policy? Do you think it would be expansion of maternal and child health to include physical and mental maternal health, uh, along with the more routine reproductive offering, including pre and postnatal care. Um, and I'd say these lessons do carry over directly to the UK. The Family Nurse Partnership offers nurse visits from pregnancy through till the child is age two. It's currently targeted at young mothers, but there are many advantages, including cost advantages, to having universal programs. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sonia. It's so fascinating. And I think we could, as we've often say with guests, it's like, We'll have to have you come back again because we've got so much more that we could talk about um, uh, with you. And so uh, that's something we'll have to book in for the future. But thank you so much. It's been really fascinating and, and inspiring to uh, uh, talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Martin Franz. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Boschard. And I'm Matt Dixon. And we'll be back with more soon. <laughs>